Uh, good morning. Uh, my name is Alex Watlington, and I uh, am a friend of your pastors through our presbytery. And I do ministry uh, in downtown Los Angeles at the University of Southern California. But today, uh, I'm just here in this moment to open God's Word with you. And so if you have a Bible, uh, turn to Philippians chapter 3, that New Testament letter, uh, beginning at verse 12. And I, I will just tell you on the front end, um, I usually speak with a microphone, and so sometimes I have a very soft voice. So if I get to be too muted, would you just in the back just give me a thumbs up or tell me if you can't hear me? I apologize for that. This is um, God's Word beginning in verse 12 from Philippians 3. The Apostle Paul wrote this. Not that I have already obtained this, where I'm already perfect. But I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me His own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if at anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. This is God's word. Let me go to the Lord in prayer that he might bless our word. Father, as we open your word, uh, would you speak now through your spirit? Would you open our eyes and our ears to the beauty and the majesty and the assurance of Jesus himself? In his name we pray. Amen. On the wake of uh, our celebration of the Reformation, let me read this quote to you from a theological giant, John Calvin himself. On the doctrine of perseverance, he says this, Perseverance is the gift of God, which he does not lavish promiscuously on all, but imparts to whom he pleases. If it is asked how the difference arises, why some steadily persevere and others prove deficient in steadfastness, we can give no other reason than that the Lord, by His mighty power, chooses to do it Himself. And so, uh, as uh, Calvin describes this doctrine for us, um, he lays it out in a fashion that's easy to hear, that perseverance, the movement towards the Christian goal of knowing Christ and, and being found in Him, is simply something that happens to you. Uh, it's a little abstract that it is a goal that we sort of maybe um, close our eyes and hope it just works out that way for us. But uh, the problem is, is that, like Walker, Walker Percy says of the pilgrim, we still have to get through an ordinary Wednesday afternoon. H how will we attain the goal of knowing Christ and being found in Him? Calvin actually goes on. No one can travel so far that he does not make some progress each day. So let us never give up. Then we shall move forward daily in the Lord's way. And let us never despair because of our limited success. Even though it is so much less than we would like, our labor is not wasted when today is better than yesterday. How will you move forward? How will you persevere? How will you press on towards the goal of knowing Christ. You have the Apostle Paul here, 
I think, highlights four sort of angles or four things that he held out in front of himself that the reality of God uh, making perseverance a gift, that it is something that he does in us, does not, it's not negated or canceled out by our efforts, nor does it negate any effort that we make, but it is found in our efforts and it's found in our perseverance that God does perseverance. And I think Paul held out four things that enabled God's perseverance in him to be a gift. And these four things I think we have to hold on if we're going to know Christ and be found in him. One, that the journey of the, of, is a struggle. Two, we must always start from scratch. Three, you must live like you are loved. And four, you must never, ever, ever stop banking on the end of the story. So first, uh, the journey is a struggle. Look in verse 12, the Apostle Paul says this. Not that I ever obtained this, or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own. Then in verse 13, Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward on what lies ahead. And then verse 14, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call in Christ Jesus. Paul says this, look, I'm not going to get to the goal of knowing Christ and being found in him accidentally. It's not going uh, to just happen to me. It's not going to be something that I close my eyes and hope I make it at the end. He says, in order to get there, in order to press on, in order to attain the prize, I am going to have to struggle. It's going to be a 16-round fight. It's going to be a march up the mountain. It's always going to be upstream. Uh, if you've ever done any fly fishing, the two most common fish to fish for in that sport would be either a trout or salmon. If you know anything about fishing for a trout, what you do is you wait for the trout to come downstream. You stand at the end of the creek, find a little bed where the thing will come, and throw your line in and watch the trout come down the stream. But the salmon is the exact opposite. A, sw a salmon swims upstream. And the reason it's swimming upstream is it's trying to get back to the place so that it, that it can spawn. It's trying to find its original spawning life that it itself can make and find life. And what the Apostle Paul is saying is, is in order to find life in the Christian world, in order to attain the goal, it's always going to be upstream. See, there's a lot of things in life that we can make goals with and, and are worth sort of spending a lot of time on. We want to be the best in our field. Or we want to be the best athlete. Or we, we want to make the most money. Or we, we even want to be the best person in our neighborhood. But all those, while admirable, can all be drawn back to one thing, about making our life great. You see, life is always going to be about one of two things. It's either going to be about other people for you, for your own glory, or you for other people, for the glory of Jesus. But other people for you, what Paul is saying here is other people for you, for your own glory, is always going to be like a trout. It's always going to be downstream. It's always going to be very natural to us. Listen to the Martin Luther in his work on the Romans talk about this. He says, It is easy, I say, to sense how we seek and love ourselves in all of this, how we are bent in, how we are curved in on ourselves. If not in what we do, then at least in what we are disposed to do. Or put more succinctly, Woody Allen just simply says, the heart wants what it wants. See, life is either you for me, for my own glory, or me for you, for the glory of Jesus. But Paul 
It says, the goal of being found in Christ, where us, for other people, for the, His glory, to know Him and be found in Him, it's like, a, it's like a salmon. It's always going to be upstream. It's always going to be up against the hill. 1 Corinthians 9, Paul talks about a Christian is an athlete. He's like an athlete in training. Well, what does this illustration tell us? An athlete in training is, is somebody that's always saying no to common things that everybody else says yes to. Uh, do you want to stay out late? I can't. I've got to get up and work out in the morning. Do you want to go out and eat this fatty food? I can't. I've got to, I'm in training. Do you want to stay up and do this? I can't. I'm in training. Eat this. Drink this. Do this. I can't. I'm in training. They're always saying no. Why? Because they want the prize. They want the medal. They want to make the team. And Paul is saying, look, following Jesus, the Christian life, the goal of knowing him and being found in him, it's always like you're an athlete in training. It's always going to be upstream. It's always going to be against the grain. It's always going to be a struggle. Now let's apply this for one second. What this sort of means for you personally is that you're going to, in order to find the prize, in order to find the goal of Christ, need to always actively put yourself in places of healing. The church for us in the 21st century is something that can be so peripheral, uh, so secondary, so fit into our schedule if it works. And when we talk about the primacy of the church for our Christian life, we're not talking about it just in terms of an exceeding nature to check a box. But we're saying, look, we are not prone to love other people more than ourselves. We are not prone to repent. We are not prone to be honest about our struggles. We are not prone to give our resources away. Those things are never going to come natural to us. Luther says we're bent in on ourselves. But those things in itself are how we begin to attain the prize of Christ himself. And in order for us to do that, you have to be in practical places where those types of things are being exemplified before you, are being told to you, are being sung for you, are being prayed about with other people amongst us. Because we are like a trout. We will always, in and of ourselves, just go downstream unless we are found in a community and found in practical places where people around us, where the activities around us are like salmon swimming up upstream, pressing on, straining towards the goal of knowing Christ himself. Look, in order to get the prize, the journey will always be a struggle. But secondly, the second thing that Paul held out in front of himself is that you must always start from scratch. Look, so much of our life uh, is hinged on what has happened to us. But what Paul says in this text is that we must forget and move on and press forward. Look what he says in verse 13. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do forgetting what lies behind. Now, when Paul says, I forget what lies behind, he's not saying that the good will just outweigh my bad, and so I forget my bad things and try to live a a life that will be admirable enough to cancel out my bad. He's saying, I'm going to have a clean pursuit of Christ. My whole background, everything that I was about, everything that made me me, everything that made me admirable, everything that made me self-confident, it's gone, it's wiped away. We didn't read it, but the text that he's referring to are the immediate verses before this, where Paul talks about 
the confidence of his resume being obliterated. He said, look, I was the best Pharisee. I knew the Bible better than anybody. I knew the law better than anybody. I was more obedient than anybody. And he's tapping into something that is so natural to us in our human experience. And that's to always look back on our life and the most admirable things, our greatest accomplishments, the things that we've been the most encouraged about, and say, this will define who I am. This will enable me to get up today. This will enable me to keep going in this job. I remember that time. I got this bonus. I got this reward. I got this compliment. And that will enable me to go forward. But Paul says, look, in the realm of the gospel of knowing Christ, we do not bank on our past, but we forget it and we wipe it clean. And say, I will not live in light of either the great things I've done or the horrible things that have happened to me. But through the cross, I will clean it out. And I will start from scratch. And friends, this is very, very hard. And here's why. Because we are so prone to make the goals of our life, to make our chief ends a reaction to the things that have happened to us. You know, typical goals. I will not let this person get the best of me. Or I'll always prove them wrong. I can't let anyone find out because I still have to have their approval. There's so many painful things that have happened to us. There's so many trivial things that have happened to us that are justifiable wounds that need healing. But what our heart is prone to do is take our wounds and react to them in such a way that we will make life ambitions about proving the person wrong, about proving this thing wrong, about overcoming this hard thing so that we may know that we are okay, that we are justified, that we are approved. And the reactions then, what it does is turn us into somebody we often would never want to be. I remember in Tiger Woods' scandal eight or nine years ago when his uh, infidelity came out, the saddest part of that story to me was an interview that came out with his high school girlfriend where she said that uh, in high school he would confide in her constant anger and frustration about his own father's infidelity with his mother and how hurtful that was and how much that angered him and how much that destroyed him and how he was never going to be like his father. But see, if you never forget... If you never move on from your past, we are so prone to repeat it because our life is a reaction. It's also so hard to forget because of how much guilt we feel in life. See, if you feel guilty in life about something that's happened to you or something that you have done that you've never confessed, that you've never talked about, so much of your own life will be about taking the atonement of that guilt on your own shoulders and making your life ambition about atoning for and cleansing and making your past worthy of your present. And you will be overwhelmed by this. See, in order to forget, here's the hard work. You're probably going to have to forgive some people. And you're probably going to have to be forgiven for some things that you're afraid that you could never be forgiven for. See, forgetting is hard. Because in order to forget, we have to look at people and look at things 
that have been life-changing and difficult and stare at them with the grace of forgiveness. And there are things for us that we feel so guilty we've never even been able to admit to ourselves. And we have to sit in the grace and the forgiveness of Jesus that we may have a clean whiteboard. See, listen, when Paul says, I forget what is behind, look, he's not just saying, I closed my eyes and pretended it was not there. He's saying, the things that defined me, that I'm so prone to live in light of, I have gotten rid of them, and the slate is now clean. He he said, if I'm going to press on, I'm going to start from scratch. In 1997, when Steve Jobs returned to Apple, the tech company he co-founded, more than two decades earlier, it was on the brink of failure. And during the final quarter of 1996, Apple sales plummeted nearly 30%. And in order for him to re-enter this company, he said, I will do it on a few conditions. And he reworked and started from scratch on the entire marketing strategy, the entire business approach, and almost the entire staff approach. He said this, if you want to live your life in a creative way and attain your goal, you have to not look back too much. You have to be willing to take whatever you've done and whoever you were and throw it all away. Look, Paul is saying if you want to live a life that is defined by knowing Christ and being found by Him, the past is the past, and you must start with scratch. The slate is clean. The cross is wiped it out and given you a new beginning and able to forgive and to be forgiven that you may press on. The journey is a struggle. We must almost start from scratch. But thirdly, you must live like you are loved. See, as always, the eyes must be on the prize, but only in the gospel does the prize come after you before you attain it. Let me show you what I mean. Look in verse 12. Paul says this, Not that I have already obtained this, or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own. Why? So that God will love me more? No. God already loves us. So that God will not be upset at me? So that God will not rain down His wrath and frustration upon me? No. All that has been cleansed with the cross. I press on to make it my own. Why? Because Christ Jesus has made me His own. See, you must always live like you are loved. And Paul here is tapping into a fantastic principle that has always got to be true for you to press on. That's always got to be true for you to pursue the goal of Christ Himself. And it's this, that we will never press on to anything and we will never grab a hold of anything that doesn't first grab a hold of us. See, commitment is always, true commitment is always preceded and initiated by unconditional love. See, God knows that our hearts are so fickle and we are so fearful and we are so afraid and we are so prone to live in conditional paradigms. He knows we will never pursue Him. He knows we will never grab back. We will never seek to know Him unless we are fully confident and we are fully sure that He Himself loves us. See, it is not commit to God so that He in turn will persevere you. 
It's knowing first what Calvin says, that perseverance, listen, it is a gift of God, that he will do this, that he will hold you to the end, that he himself will carry you and take you to be with him forever. And it is that knowledge and that safety and that assurance that Paul then lived out of and said, I, I grab hold of him. Why? Because he has first grabbed a hold of me. See, God never asks anything of us that he himself has not already done to us. And here's, here's the application that we need to live in. See, for some of us, perseverance feels very dry right now. And knowing Jesus feels boring, or it feels distant, or it feels cold. And what you need to do more than anything is to sit and celebrate and rest in His commitment and love of you before you ever look at your commitment and celebration of Him. In the book of Leviticus, we're given a great illustration of this through the sacrificial system. If you've not read this, the, um, in the book of Leviticus, what it is, is about how to be in God's holy camp and how to live in God's holy presence. And in order to do this, the Israelites uh, were given these practical measures about how they could be in God's presence. And one of the practical measures was this thing called the sacrificial system. And it was a specific system that went like this. They were to give five offerings that were enabling them to be in fellowship with God. The first offering was the burnt offering. And what the burnt offering did is it made atonement for who you were and it signified your redemption by God. The second offering was the grain offering. And this was your, uh, your tribute and it signified your commitment to God himself in light of his commitment to you. The third offering was the peace offering. And this was a celebration of your fellowship with God and with other people. And then the fourth offering was the sin offering. This was the offering that was for purification, that you would go before the priest and you would confess your sins and you would be as honest as you've ever been about anything. And then the fifth offering was the guilt offering. And what that did is it repaired the relationship between you and the Lord in light of what immediately just went on in your life. Now here's what's so profound about that system for what we're talking about. The two hardest things for us to do, to press on, are the sin offering and the guilt offering. Being completely honest of our lives. Not faking it. Not telling everyone how great we're doing. I had a good week. But standing before God and being true to our hearts. Saying what our true desires are which are to put you for me for my own glory in so many ways in life. But before we were to ever do that, before you were ever to sit there before the priest and tell of your honest sins and tell of your deep struggles and tell of what's really going on in your heart, you were meant to first do that after an offering of celebration. See, God understands this. We are never, ever, ever going to talk to him about who we are and talk to other people about who we are unless we first are so sure how that we are safe in him that we can celebrate in that and that we can sing in that 
and that we, we can live in light of that and live out of that. See, how much celebration are you doing? If you want to know why perseverance is hard for you, if you want to know the, why the pursuit of Christ's life and knowing Him and being found in Him is a difficult struggle, it's probably proportional to how much celebration that you do of Jesus' love for you. you know, in the book of Hebrews, the author tells us this, that the joy set before Christ on the cross allowed Him to endure it. What was the joy that Jesus had on the cross? What did he not have? You know, the only thing that Jesus did not have on the cross, that the reason he went to the cross was the fellowship and the reconciliation of you. Which means one of the greatest joys Jesus used to endure the rejection of the Father was the idea of being reconciled and being together with you. And so what Paul is saying is like, I, he says, listen, I press on to seek and know the joy of Jesus. Why? Because on the cross, he pressed on, living in light of the joy of knowing and having us. See, in order to press on, you have to stop looking at yourself and living out of the joy of how much Jesus longed to be with you and to know you. We press on. Why? Because He has grabbed a hold of us. Because He has made us His own. Look, if you have a sailboat and you put up the sail, what happens if you try to blow in it? It goes nowhere. You're just stuck. You need the wind outside of you to blow in your sail to go forward. Look, the wind outside of your life is Jesus' commitment and love to you, signified in the cross. And what the cross and resurrection are, are stamps across history that you can always know, however guilty, however lonely, however struggling, however embittered, however cold you are, His commitment never, ever fails. John Owen said this. He said, If only our soul knew, it could not bear one hour's absence from him, whereas now it can rarely endure one hour. Look, if only we knew. If only we knew. But the beauty of the gospel is even when you don't know, he still has a hold of you. So grab back. Live in light of being loved. Fourthly and lastly, what Paul kept in front of him, what Paul knew, is that he always lived banking on the end of the story. You know, maybe the most sturdy reality that Paul kept out in front of him was the secure hope of glory. Look in verse 13 and 14. He says this, Forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on to the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Jim Stockdale in his book, In Love and War, uh, recounts his days as a Vietnam POW for eight years. And the question was always coming up to him, how, how in the world did you survive POW life for eight years? And he said the people that would not survive the camp were those people who he called the optimists. He said they were always going to get out, thought they were always going to get out by Christmas. And then Christmas Eve would come and their spirit would get broken. They would give up and they would die. 
And he goes on in his book to talk about a distinct distinction between the optimists and those who are hopeful. He said what an optimist is, is somebody who lives in light of a desired outcome. But he said the problem with optimism is it's always circumstantially dependent. You're always looking at your circumstances, hoping they will change, desiring for them to get better. But he said what somebody who's hopeful does is they don't live in light of a desired outcome. They live in light of an expected outcome. No matter the circumstances, no matter what reality is telling me in the moment, I still expect this to happen. He said this, How did I survive? I never lost faith in the end of the story. Look, here's how Paul strained towards what is ahead. Here's how even in jail, even in persecution, even when there's nothing around him that made sense for God's love and provision for him, he never, ever, ever lost light at the end of the story. Look, if you want to die a Christian one day, to die not doubting God's love, but dying at the end of your life, knowing He's real, He's good. This is what life is about. You must never, ever, ever lose sight of the end of the story. Because once hope is gone, we are finished. But do you know what the prize is? Do you you know what's coming? Tolkien says it this way, that one day you're going to wake up in a bed of laughter. One day we will wake up and there will be no more days of headaches. There will be no more days of loneliness. There will be no more days we wake up full of anxiety. There will be no more days that we wake up full of burdens, full of fears, full of discouragement. We will wake up to a community of people who will laugh with us, who will sing with us, who will be intimate, committed friends with us forever and ever and ever and ever. You know, we have five senses now. I mean, we might have a hundred or two hundred senses then. I mean, rooms like this, while seem plain and ordinary now, might just seem majestic and beautiful, almost like a museum. I mean, the mountains outside are going to be so clear and so beautiful, we will walk out and maybe want to fall down on our knees because they then will be singing songs of glory that will be better than any concert we've ever been to ever before. But at the crown and the jewel in the center of all of this will be Jesus himself. Do you know that you, you will look into the face of Jesus and you will never ever be able to stop staring at him. You will never, ever, ever be able to take your eyes off of Him because the gaze of His face will be so majestic, will be so attractive. Have you ever seen another human being who was so physically striking throughout the night you just kind of could not keep peeking? Even even out of pure motives, just, just drawn to their beauty. Listen, the face of Jesus will never, ever stop drawing you in. Anne Cousin, in her great hymn, says this, the bride eyes not her garment, but her dear bridegroom's face. I will not gaze at glory, but on my King of grace. Not at the crown he giveth, but on his pierced hand. The Lamb is all the glory of Emmanuel's land. She's saying, look, in the moment of glory, you will be cloaked in an everlasting beauty. You will, you will wear a wedding dress and, and 
gentlemen I know, but that doesn't translate as well for us. But there are all days that we have where we feel so physically, we feel physically top, top peak for us. The outfit works. The hair is, is, is that day well-groomed. And we want to look at ourselves in the mirror. And we want to keep peeking at, at this day where we, we ourselves look striking. And she says there will be a day that you will be finally perfect. And you'll wear a garment that will be so glorious. And it will be so beautiful. Were you to see yourself now, you would be tempted to weep, cry, and fall down on your knees and worship yourself. But she says Jesus will be so beautiful. And He will be so attractive. And He will be so glorious. We will never even notice the dress we're wearing. We will not even eye that garment. But we will only stare at our dear bridegroom's face. And there's a lot of talk, you know, about the crown of righteousness will be given. This crown will be given. You know what you're going to do with that crown? You're going to see his face and go, do you want this? Take this from me. I would love to see it on your head, and I would love to praise you in light of it. But the face of Jesus will never disappoint. Will never disappoint. And every moment will be better than the one before. What, what in your life now can hold your gaze for even an hour, a day, a week, where you stare at it and it's just so wonderful you can't stop staring at it? Because the prize that Paul said, I'm, I'm not going to hope it happens, or excuse me, desire it happens. I'm going to bank everything on sure that this will happen. Is that the beauty of Jesus will show up and it will supersede everything this life ever, ever threw at me. And I know that's coming. And so I will struggle ahead. I will start from scratch and forget everything behind. And I will live as someone who's already purchased me that I may have that prize. What a prize to hope for. You know, and the truth of this is that in order for us to live this way, we need each other and we need other people to exemplify this for us. I'll tell you somebody who did this for me. I had a professor in, in seminary who uh, was a dear friend of mine. And uh, our, my second or third year of seminary, his daughter, uh, who was 35 years old at the time, got terminal cancer. Sweet, dear woman, happily married, two young children. And when it became sure that she was going to die, most of his days were spent uh, in his free time with her. And when she was about to die, he called the pastor of the church who brought me along and said, she's going to die, please come. So we walked into the house and they're standing by her bed, holding her, their daughter's hand, knowing she's going to die. And the last words that her daughter, his daughter heard were her mom and dad singing these words. Great is thy faithfulness, O God my Father. There is no shadow of turning with thee. You change us not, and your compassions they fail not. As thou hast been, you will always therefore be. Look, how do you sing that in that moment? 
you only sing that song in that moment if you are staring at the end of the story. Guaranteed, even in light of this hell in this present moment, this will come true. And you have to sing that song first as somebody who is deeply loved. And you have to begin to live life from scratch, knowing it's a struggle. But Jesus has made us his own. And so we grab back. May we all press on, for he has grabbed us. Amen. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, we want to be found in you. And there's so much of our life where we are tempted in every which way but that. Would you make us your own? And by your Spirit, would you enable us to grab back, to swim upstream, to press on, to live as those who are loved, and to never, ever stop straining forward, knowing the end of the story, that we may be yours. In Christ's name, amen.